Dr. Calloway. Thank you. I'm uh, Jerry Calloway. I'm an addict and alcoholic. Uh, my sobriety date's October 10th, 1980. Uh, you know, nothing in my life has worked out as I planned. Uh, I wanted to be famous, and I ended up anonymous. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah, I, uh, it's kind of funny because I got into 12-step uh, programs the back way. I, I was going because I needed to learn something about uh, what people were telling me about when they were coming back from treatment programs um, because I was sitting there, you know, they were telling me they were working on a fifth step and I was nodding very sagely and I didn't have a fucking clue what they were talking about. <laughs> so I thought I'd better go to one of these meetings. I knew it was going to be kind of grim and depressing. Uh, and instead it was like coming home. Uh, I don't know about you, but my entire life I never felt like I belonged anywhere. And uh, if you're here tonight, you belong. And Lisa, Clayton, Roger, welcome home with all my heart. That's what I felt when I walked into, the, into these rooms. And I couldn't figure out why, because at that point in my, time, in my life, I wasn't an alcoholic or an addict. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. A, a doctor friend of mine wrote this section on acceptance uh, in the AA literature. Paul used to talk about how al alcoholism is a virus uh, and addiction is a virus. You catch it from other addicts and alcoholics. It comes in through your ears. And that's definitely what happened to me. Uh, I grew up in a, a small town in the deep south, Los Angeles. Uh, and uh, I, I got a late start on things, uh, and I'm kind of grateful for that, too. I got exposed to both marijuana and alcohol my senior year of college. And from there, I went into medical school at UC Irvine. And uh, it, I found that marijuana uh, it did things for me that it took away some of the fear. You know, I now know what I was treating. Uh, in fact, I really used in the wrong t part of my life. I didn't really have any problems then. You know, I've been through cancer and recovery. I've been through a year of brain surgeries on my only son. I used in the wrong part of my life. I didn't really have any troubles. You know, fortunately, I had this program, which was even better than any chemical to see me through. Uh, I remember when my son had the stroke and um, uh, taking a drink and smoking something did nothing to take away the pain when he was one years old. When he was 19, he went through a year of state-of-the-art brain surgery at UCLA, and I had the program. And that was better than anything I could have taken. Uh, and I now know I took things to change how I felt. Uh, marijuana became very prominent in my life because I, I was actually dealing it to my medical school classmates at cost uh, because my sister kept marrying major marijuana distributors, so it really wasn't a problem acquiring it. And I thought it was harmless. I had the attitude that our society has. And uh, so I've been on both sides of the street with this one. That's so amazing for me. I don't usually end up doing a talk where it's both personal and professional, but I've been asked to talk about some of the things that we're learning about marijuana, and, and we're still learning. We're just at the beginning. I was hoping I was going to be able to present some of the data from a study that's just coming to closure. Uh, it'll come, uh, uh, it's a four-year-long study, and the data will be out April 1st. So we're, we're just a little bit ahead of the, uh, the, the curve. But I have got some of the data, and it's really uh, interesting stuff. It's really amazing. Um, the more I learn to find, the less, the less I know. Uh, um, and that's not just a product of the marijuana I, learned, I used. Uh, the, uh, thank God there's such a thing as neuroplasticity, that we can get better. There's a lot of evidence for that. Um, you know, my own story was that... Uh, I used things as long as they worked. 
and they stopped working. I started ending up only feeling incredibly paranoid, and I was getting the, uh, there's sympathomimetic, there's incredible uh, adrenergic effects from uh, marijuana, and some people get, uh, their heart rate will literally go up 100%. Mine would only go up about 40 or 50%, yeah, and, um, and the paranoia just got worse and worse every time I used. I, I knew they were coming. I didn't know who they were, but I knew they were coming. <laughs> Uh, alcohol and the uh, I added other things to my repertoire I, you know, it's part of my story it's, I know it's an MA meeting but uh, and I don't really even care anymore what people used or what they started with um, because as I've become to understand this disease uh, it's again molecular genetics everything in the world seems to be coming down to that uh, it's caught up with me a number of times. The cancer I had was the same one that killed Grandma. My uh, cousin Carolyn in Tucson had exactly the same cancer the same week I did, identical in every way. Same cell type, same morphology, same, same surgery. Um, everything's turning out to be genetic, and addiction's no exception. 15% of the population in the United States carries it. I'm Irish, that's 21, 22%. <laughs> uh, once a gene appears on one side of a family, most of you already probably know this, 70% of the people in the family are going to have it, even if they're adopted at birth into a non-drinking family or a non-using. It's a more powerful gene than diabetes. And there are differences at birth. We know that. You know, the founders of AA said we're different from our fellows. Um, they said a lot of interesting things. They said drugs and alcohol are but a symptom of our real disease, which was the most intriguing thing that I heard. But they said that uh, we're different from our fellows, and we, and we are. At birth, higher than normal IQs, which is kind of a blessing and a curse. That's why I took things to try and shut this thing down. Uh, and lower than normal endorphin levels. We found this in animals. We now know it's true in human infants. Endorphins are the relaxing chemicals in the brain. Yeah, that's how we experience pleasure. Runners high, laughter, lovemaking, eating a large meal, having something nice happen to our kids. Anything pleasurable is mediated by the release of endorphins. We can't experience pleasure without them. Well, those of us with addictive genes at birth have lower than normal endorphin levels out the gate. You develop the addictive personality, and uh, I'll talk about that a little bit. You can end up chewing up your endorphins like I did, just with your thinking. And what could be more natural than going out and taking something endorphin-like? Initially, it works. Uh, unfortunately, there's, there's a property, a chemical property called competitive inhibition, that if I take something that's a foreign molecule long enough my brain's going to get the message, I don't need to make any endorphins, I'll get them from the outside, and shuts down all endorphins. Natural endorphins don't do that. The laughter that I've heard in this room tonight, uh, that's a natural endorphins. That doesn't produce any kind of competitive inhibition. You know, that's why uh, we end up feeling worse over a period of time. That and the silent cumulative damage. Um, there's only a single pathway in the brain. It's taken us years to work that out. Uh, alcohol goes into uh, tetrahydropaverlene, one of the tetrahydroisoquinolones. I want you to memorize that. There's going to be a short quiz later on this evening. Uh, uh, that just happens to be the second step in the breakdown of heroin. Tranquilizers go into it, THC. Um, I was thinking about it today. Was, I've been thinking about this talk all week long, and it's taken me back over the years, over the things that I used to do. I'm just amazed I'm alive. Yeah because I've had four people die in the last month mixing things together. It's hard to kill people with single agents, but boy, they, you can take them out in a real hurry with mixing alcohol and opiates, or opiates and tranquilizers, or marijuana with, uh, with a combination of the above. 
and we've had four deaths in people 18 to 36 in just the last month. And I'm sure they weren't trying to kill themselves. I mean, I wasn't. You know, We had something when I was a senior medical student at Irvine. We used to go up to L.A. County General Hospital, and there was an auditorium uh, about twice the size of this room, and we called it Drug Day. Um, all the pharmaceutical companies come, would come up, and you know, thank God they did away with it. You could put on a white coat, show up, and get anything you could possibly think of. And like my friend Paul, who wrote the section in Alcoholic Addict, I, I personally never took a pill that wasn't medically indicated for a symptom that I had at the time or one that I felt coming on. <laughs> uh, the really disturbing thing was in preparing for this talk, I, I read about uh, the incidence of strokes that are occurring with people with marijuana. It seems to predominantly occur when they uh, mix any alcohol with it. Uh, it can occur alone, but uh, the majority of the cases have been uh, reported now with mixing alcohol. There was one uh, case report in September of last year of a 24-year-old with uh, a series of massive strokes. He, he's permanently going to be damaged. And I got to thinking, I was 24 and I was mixing alcohol and marijuana together. You know, once again, my higher power was protecting me and I didn't even know it. You know, I used to routinely do things that uh, I get to see people die now on a regular basis. You know, so I don't know. I don't know why I'm still here. It must be uh, there's something still meant to do. All of us are still meant to be here. You know, uh, we're here tonight. Um, as addicts and alcoholics, we're not supposed to be. It's the only disease I know of that has a 100% death rate untreated. No malignancy approaches that. And yet the treatment, when I talk to people, um, basically your whole life's going to have to get better. Uh, you know, yeah, horrible price to pay. Yeah, uh, the, um, I want to mix in some of the stuff that I've been uh, reading about because it, it, it does, I was asked questions even during dinner. Uh, there's a, a lot of people that are getting double digits uh, sobriety and recovery from marijuana and concerned about what's happening and what's happening to them. Also the fact that we're all getting older. Uh, something I haven't been able to, able to figure out how to escape. Uh, and that compounds the problems, especially if you're uh, eating uh, pro-inflammatory foods and uh, uh, anything like high fructose corn syrup. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that that isn't going to be really good for those of us who've already done some damage. Very easy for us to march into uh, diabetes. One in four adults are, is now diabetic in this country as of last uh, October 1st. And it probably has a lot to do uh, with um, uh, flour, sugar, and high fructose corn syrup, especially for people like us that may have damaged our pancreases and our livers. Uh, and the problem is, is outer-level addictions which I honestly found quite easy, uh, alcohol and drugs. I I've, haven't I've, had to go back and take anything. I've been able to go through abdominal mesh surgeries, and I've done nine colonoscopies without anesthetics. I, you know, and I know a lot of tricks that I don't have to take things. It's the inner level addictions that I find a little more disturbing. That was a model I was trained in. You know, food, sex, tobacco, work, spending money, gambling, the tie-in with the core issues of self-esteem. Four out of seven isn't bad. Yeah. Father Tom in Berkeley and I have a, a similar philosophy. He said in Berkeley they think that people that aren't at least three 12-step programs are still in denial. <laughs> and then you guys brought out chocolate cake. <laughs> Theobromine, an endorphin-like uh, drug. Uh, uh, yeah, the, 
it's hard to define sobriety in some of those things. It's a little easier for those of us with alcohol and drugs. You know, we're just, we just don't take anything. Uh, and there's a lot of options for us, too. There's, uh, there's a lot of neat tricks I've learned along the way. If you're going in for some kind of surgery, this is just one that I want to pass on. I've done this with a lot of my patients. And I've done it with some of the guys I sponsor. If you're going to have, it doesn't matter what kind of surgery, it turns out. UCLA Orthopedic Department taught me this. If you don't have an active ulcer and you're not allergic to sulfa, take two Celebrex the night before surgery. It, it dramatically decreases pain requirements. I had, a, I had a mesh put in that way. Didn't require any pain at all the next day. I've done that before. I've had dental procedures or, I've, or when I've had patients that are having something done. So that's a neat trick that you don't have to end up on anything that's potentially cross-addictive, as, as they read it, uh, the last reader. Um, there's a lot of ways we can deal with things without having to take things. Uh, I, I live with a lot of chronic pain. I've got a metal ankle, uh, knee that someone stepped on on a river trip, uh, a lot of adhesions from the cancer surgery. But I do a lot of exercise. I try and keep my endorphins up naturally. You know what the other, uh, one of the other places that, uh, that they've proven to raise endorphins? Any guesses on what it is? Uh, sex, that was very good. I wasn't thinking that one. Meetings. I was thinking meetings, but it was interesting that some of you came up with sex. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sex and meetings. Uh, that's another whole topic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They've tapped into the back of people's brains before and after 12-step meetings and found they had a rise in their endorphin levels. It's a gutsy thing to do. I've always known I felt better. But there actually is a change in our brain chemistry. There's something uh, positive that happens. Um, I was, um, it's really, uh, my higher power has this incredible sense of humor. One other part of my own personal story is I went in the United States Navy to resume my social life. I had worked myself to death in an internal medicine residency, uh, doing more than was even required, of course. Um, and. The Navy always builds bases on coastlines, and they put out a wharf, and they build an officer's club. And I knew where I, was, where I wanted to be. My first duty station was Long Beach Naval Hospital, which not only didn't have an officer's club, it had one of their two treatment centers in the entire world for addiction medicine. <laughs> Betty Ford had just gone through there. Petty, uh, uh, President Carter's bridging brother Billy came through after I left, and they started teaching me about this, 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 this disease that hadn't been mentioned in 24 years of school. There wasn't even an hour in 24 years. You know, at least we're teaching younger doctors now. Uh, but anyone of my vintage, I can guarantee you, your doctor just doesn't have a fucking clue. <laughs> uh, you can tell them that you have a history of addiction. And uh, one of my patients, who I, I, I love our sense of humor, uh, as he and I were howling with laughter, he came back, he was a heroin addict. He'd been to see his dentist, and the dentist said, I'm going to write a script for Vicodin. And he said, no, I can't take that. I'm a recovering opiate addict. And the uh, dentist said, I know, I'm the doctor. I know what I'm doing. Instead of getting into a battle of wills with him, my patient said, OK, write me a script for 200 with three refills so I don't have to call you for a week or so. <laughs> the dentist put away the prescription pad. <laughs> and, uh, uh, we're a clever bunch. You know. uh, and that's part of the, the reason people remain with that higher than normal IQ, so highly functional for so many years in the face of literally brain-damaging chemicals. Uh, fortunately, it looks like a lot of the brain damage 
reverses. We're doing a lot of neuropsych testing. The problem, it turns out, is how much you used and how early it was when you started. Even most, more important than how much you used almost is when you started. Uh, before age 17, things start becoming statistically significant. Before age 15, they're really significant. And uh, we're starting to look at long-term effects on uh, cognition and executive function. Uh, executive function is the higher functions. Cognition is thinking. Um, even while people are using their left brain is pretty much okay. They can walk and talk. can look pretty normal. Right brain, creativity, abilities to abstract, understand concepts, working memory, stuff you can remember and then make decisions around, decision making. All those higher functions are affected. And uh, the effects are especially dramatic once people stop. We thought there was no marijuana withdrawal syndrome. Yeah. You know, people didn't vomit, you know. I mean, uh, they, they, you know, they didn't, didn't get tachycardia and hypertension, and uh, we didn't have to put them in ICUs. But it, uh, what's worse yet, it turns out it's an even longer. It doesn't appear for a while sometimes, especially if you have a, a, a lot of it on board because the damn drug's so lipophilic. Part of that, uh, lipophilic means fat storing. That's why we can get a positive urine drug screen on someone who's been a heavy user a month after they stop. Uh, the worst part of it is that 60% of my brain is white matter, 40% is uh, gray matter. The white matter is myelin, uh, specialized nerve-conducting fat. And that's where this damn stuff saturates into. And that's where these prolonged effects are. And, and it's really exciting that there's something we can now do about it. Because people really run into problems. They're even worse after they stop. I don't know if any of you have experienced that. But if you felt a lot worse after you stopped, it's uh, because your brain is uh, reacting to that uh, sudden change, and uh, the cognitive effects uh, seem to be magnified instead of lessened. Uh, there's something we can do about that. Uh, three years ago, I was at the State of the Art in Addiction Medicine course in San Francisco, and the people from Scripps Institute that are doing the four-year study, they presented the first wing of it, which was on marijuana withdrawal. Uh, how to treat it, because we've never known. You know, I'm entirely comfortable treating uh, alcohol and opiates and tranquilizers, but we've never had a clue. And they went through a list of all the different things that have been tried. Well, butrin didn't work at all. Um, you know, even some experimental meds for withdrawal hadn't worked um, in the audience. You could tell who was in recovery and, and who wasn't, because those of us in recovery were uh, just in hysterics when they described what they'd done. Uh, they put an ad in the local metro down in San Diego. Uh, are you interested in stopping marijuana? We have a research protocol for uh, withdrawal. Contact Scripps Institute. Well, they started getting indignant calls. Why would I want to stop marijuana? <laughs> now, and, uh, then ultimately, they got 2,000 calls, you know, people really interested. 1,200 of them signed up. 600 actually showed up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that, this is exactly the response we had. And the, uh, the other people in the room were, what's funny? What's funny? <laughs> no. uh, I have that experience all the time when I'm in with, uh, with my addiction medicine professional friends. You can really tell the differences. Uh, a friend of mine was the expert witness at the Exxon Valdez trial. And uh, uh, he realized that he was coming out of his, uh, uh, taking a risk. But they asked him, you know, when they, Captain Joe said he w wasn't drinking, and they said, what do you think of that, doctor? And he said, it's obvious he was lying. 
you know, and they said, what? I said, yeah, it's a normal part of the disease. He said, I lied all the time when I uh, used things, so, you know, even when I didn't have to. It was a reflex, and the jury believed him, and the Indians won. Well, he was telling us this, and he was standing up at a podium after a, a conference like this, and there was a water pitcher, and he picked it up, and he was looking around. There wasn't a glass anywhere, so he was drinking out of the water pitcher, and the half of us in the room that were in recovery were laughing like mad, and the other half were saying, what's funny? What's funny? My experiences in the uh, the Navy, um, one of the most horrible things I ever saw was what happened to Marines when they were caught with a single marijuana joint in in, uh, Japan. Uh, It's an automatic 20-year sentence, Uh, uh, no parole possible, Uh, solitary confinement, fish heads and rice. A number of them hung themselves. And then I was thinking, you know, I was watching the Grammys last week and saw Paul McCartney. He carried marijuana into Japan when he was going in on a wings tour. I don't, re- I don't think he has any idea how lucky he was because they deported him. That isn't what they would have done with one of us. You know, the really strange thing is that the Marines could buy 10 milligram Valium over the counter in the pharmacies. You know, there was no problem with that. But if you were caught with a single joint, uh, there was... There was no possible uh, way to get out of the sentencing. Uh, it was interesting. I was thinking that uh, a lot of the stuff that we're learning about marijuana is about its immune effects. And when I talk about marijuana, I don't even know what I'm talking about because it depends on uh, what form you're using, what the concentration is. Uh, we had this problem in medicine when I first came into medicine, the whole idea that we could use a leaf as medicine. We had, we had to do that with digitalis leaf. Uh, 40 years ago, that's all we had if you had heart failure. Now we've got medicines that you won't even go into heart failure. But back then, you know, it was digitalis. And the problem is the plants varied in concentration. So the patient either got sometimes uh, same size tablet, either they got too too little or they got too much. What was interesting is you knew they got too much because they would start getting yellow vision. Everything they saw would turn yellow. And that's how we knew that they had gotten a more concentrated uh, leaf uh, variety. And that's uh, what we're seeing with marijuana, is the, uh, the variances are unbelievable. Back when I was uh, using it uh, 40 years ago, uh, you had to buy imported to get any appreciable THC content. Uh, it was uh, 7%. Uh, I was buying Colombian and Hawakan. The uh, homegrown at that point in this state was 2%. You might as well smoke the front lawn. Uh, <laughs> It was really harsh. Uh, by the early 90s, uh, the California crops were, were all at 7%. And it was a $15 billion crop that, uh, uh, by the early 90s. In fact, if the marijuana crop failed this year, 40% of the workforce uh, in three northern California counties would be out of work. Um, I'm PG&E's primary consultant for Northern California. Uh, and the funniest thing I've ever read was the PG&E field manual for Mendocino County. Uh, PG&E doesn't report uh, marijuana plantations. They've made that very clear because they don't want their field workers molested. Uh, and there's instructions. So if, you're, if you ever end up in a marijuana plantation, you want to get the hell out of there in a real hurry because they figure you're there to rip them off. Every time we raid one, there's you know shotguns, automatic weapons, handguns. No people, but lots of weapons. Um, the 
instruction to the PG&E field worker, uh, and I was in hysterics when I read it, is uh, if you find yourself in a, a marijuana plantation, the instruction is to uh, raise your hand, yell, I'm a PG&E worker, I'm lost, and I'm leaving now, and back out of the field. <laughs> I've gotten to see so many things on, on this journey. Um, the really uh, crazy things is uh, the infectious disease specialist I work with at Good Sam are the best I've ever encountered. I trained at the Western Communicable Disease Center. When Barry Bonds is infected, knee wouldn't heal. They sent him to, to Robert Armstrong, where I practice. Uh, he's just amazing. And he started calling me in on all these healthy teenagers. Some of you have heard me speak about this before. Uh, just couldn't figure it out, what was going on. Uh, first one came in with liver abscesses. Most of you have never heard of that. Pockets of pus in the, in the liver. And he got treated with IV antibiotics. CAT scan showed he was normal. He went home, smoked marijuana two or three times over the next couple of weeks, and came back with bigger liver abscesses. And they worked him up, uh, didn't have AIDS, didn't have complement deficiency, had no immune problems. And they called me in, and I said, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, I read a lot about that. But it was all animal research. This is back to 1988. The stuff about marijuana, you know, thank God for the Internet because now you can find things like this. You know, if you didn't subscribe to the Journal of Psychoactive Drugs, you would have never read any of this stuff that I'm going to show you. Uh, and the real problem, unfortunately, is with the medical literature, uh, the way it's written. Uh, most of it's unreadable. Uh, an example that applied to this young man with liver abscesses. The transformation of B cells stimulated by the mitogen LPS was inhibited more than were T cells stimulated by PHA following the same doses of THC in mice, Klein et al. This evidence of diminished B cell reactivity following the administration of THC was confirmed in another study, Munson et al., 1976, that showed a dose-dependent suppression from doses of 50, 100, and 200 milligrams per kilogram of THC in mice. Right. <laughs> And these doses are enormous, of course. That was the only sentence I could understand in the entire paragraph. Yeah, I have 24 years of school behind me, uh, internal medicine boards. I had to read this uh, half dozen times to figure out they were saying that uh, the immune system is suppressed uh, by increasing concentrations of marijuana. And there are 50 articles that are summarized in this one four pages, just this one article. Uh, these go back into the early 70s. So the data's been there that it affects the immune system. The problem is, is that it does it even more now, and we couldn't figure out why. And it became clear to me when I uh, did a talk for the probation officers in Marin and Sonoma County, and one of them said, I may have an answer for you. And he gave me, uh, he said, this isn't published. The feds raided all the crops in Northern California. And the THC content used to be 7%. Uh, hashish is 19%. We used to see blocks of resin out in the Orient. Uh, the THC content currently is going from 8 to 26 percent. Yeah. And God only knows what else it concentrated. You know, there's, there were 28. We now know there's 60 different cannabinoids in marijuana. There's 140 different chemicals. We don't have a clue what they combust into. But there is direct links with all kinds of interesting immune problems. The next kid that came in that I saw was a 15-year-old varsity uh, water polo player. And you've got to be in incredible shape to play water polo. And uh, this kid um, had a dental cleaning and ended up with, uh, with a spontaneous infection inside bone. No break in the skin, just a spontaneous infection. 
and someone in peak athletic condition. It turns out he drank one 40-ounce beer a month and smoked marijuana on and off. The next one was a varsity water polo player that uh, Sharon reminded me of earlier this evening. Uh, 18-year-old uh, came in with pneumonia, which isn't uncommon, certainly not this time of year. Uh, we're in the midst, we're just at the start of the uh, influenza epidemic. The most cases are here in California, by the way. But this kid had pockets of pus in his lungs, the kinds of things we see in end-stage alcoholics that have destroyed their livers so their immune system's shot, and they get that kind of weird infection. You don't expect that in a varsity basketball player. Next one came in with tonsils that closed off his airway. He could hardly breathe. And there's just been one after another, and I couldn't figure out until we started looking at the fact that, uh, it's, that it isn't just the THC. Something else has been concentrated. There's a direct link with head and neck cancer. You know, the FDA monitors medications. If you're on a medicine, uh, even if it's a generic, the FDA is like the Gestapo. If it says five milligrams, I guarantee you it's five milligrams. It's not 5.1 or 4.8. Um, the, there isn't anybody monitoring uh, street drugs quite that well. <laughs> There's not a lot of quality control. And it's not just the additives. It's, it's the fact that if you end up concentrating something you don't intend to concentrate, and then you start seeing effects that you don't really want to see. Uh, the FDA will deny us releasing a drug if it emerges during its uh, testing, you know, there's phase one, phase two, phase three. If at some point it, it emerges that it raises your blood pressure a little bit, it's gone. It'll never appear on the market. Can you imagine if I tried to propose to the FDA, well, I have this drug that's uh, rather brain damaging, uh, damages the immune system and causes head and neck cancer. Uh, and oh yes, there's a 70% increase in testicular cancer in young males. Uh, it also can cause strokes if you mix it with alcohol. Uh, aside from that, it's really pretty good medicine. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we have targeted medicines that will do even better and without the side effects that have been studied through phase one, two, three. If you have nausea with chemotherapy, I don't want to give you a drug that's going to attack your immune system. There's something already wrong with your immune system or we wouldn't be there doing it. The only part of the Hippocratic Oath that made sense to me was above all, do no harm. And that's why I, I've, I've been doing the assessments of people that have been given medical marijuana cards, and they're turning up with, you know, arthritis that I probably wouldn't prescribe two Tylenol for. You know, uh, PG&E is real upset if one of their uh, one of their uh, people that are climbing electrical towers is given a medical marijuana card. Let me tell you, um, because uh, the possibilities of getting electrocuted on that job are a little better than even with a toaster at home in the in, in a bathtub. Uh, if you wonder, uh, yeah, one of our field workers uh, we think may have been using previously uh, pushed down on a line and uh, yeah, it went into a receptacle and electrocuted by his coworker. And we're talking about uh, you know, 300 uh, milliamps, you know, 10,000 volts. If you want to read something about this, there are, there are places. I, uh, I was asked to give you some information on places you can read that are a little more readable. I went into Google Med looking there, and if you put down marijuana, unfortunately, you're going to get ma mainly these testimonials about how wonderful it is. Yeah. Uh, it's only when you put in things like marijuana, head and neck cancer, that you start to get articles like I have. But it's exciting to me that it is appearing in, in 
areas that isn't isolated to the medical literature. This came off the internet. The partnership um, at drugfree.org. Imaging scans show daily marijuana use can have a negative effect on the brain. I don't know if any of you have seen the PET scans. Uh, this has been the stuff that's really disturbing. Cannabis uh, use is linked with risk for psychosis in later life. Probably some of you sitting here right now are psychotic and don't even know. Uh, uh, I, I personally have had some significant problems with my thinking. Uh, it, I would take your 12 questions in the same way that I take the 20 questions from Johns Hopkins University and change them because it's actually turned out to be a lot more uh, relevant for me. Um, I never got caught. That's why I didn't think I had a problem. In fact, to be honest with you, the only person I have ever seen arrested, once we excluded people who were arrested from, uh, for uh, sales and possession, the only person I have ever seen arrested with marijuana was a guy who was using it the first time and was picked up by the highway patrol when he was doing 15 miles an hour in the right lane of the freeway. <laughs> he thought he was going faster. That's what he told me. When it, it's always been kind of interesting to me when you change things around a little bit in the questionnaire, that questionnaire of yours from uh, MA, which is very similar to the one from AA, um, if you change the word uh, drink to think instead of, you know, do you drink alone uh, or do you use alone, do you think alone? Do you lose time work from work due to thinking? Uh, have you ever felt remorse after thinking? Oh, this one I can answer. Have you gotten into financial difficulties as a result of thinking? Dave Barry says that your doctor will, will know of investments that, you know, that you, most of you will never hear about, fortunately. Uh, underwater cattle ranches. Uh, has your ambition decreased since thinking? Do you want to think the next morning? Does thinking cause you to have difficulty in sleeping? Has your efficiency decreased since thinking? Have you had a complete loss of memory as a result of thinking? Uh, do you envy people who can think without getting into trouble? <laughs> and, and my favorite, have you tried to stop thinking for a few days but been unsuccessful? <laughs> I clearly have a disease of thinking, and it's alive and well, and the medication I take is coming to meetings because I, I forget and think I'm in charge. Unfortunately, uh, I'm surrounded by people that remind me, and I was laughing earlier today when I was starting to get scared about coming to talk to all of you and then finding, once again, I'm amongst friends and family. Uh, but I was, again, it was, I guess it must be eight years ago, I was going to go down and teach a class for family court judges in Los Angeles. And I made the mistake of telling a woman with long-term recovery that I was really feeling scared. Uh, I said, Pat, I've always had this fear of being judged, and I'm going to go talk to judges. <laughs> no. And she said, it sounds like you have reason to be afraid. And I said, really? Yeah. Uh, yeah. She says, yeah, it sounds like you think you're in charge again. You know, and it was, I started to laugh and thought, yeah, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? They're not going to want to see me again. Uh, and uh, 
had a lot of fun with it, and I told them what recovery looked like and uh, how to ask someone, you know, ask them what their sobriety date is. If they can't tell you one, they don't have one. You know, what does recovery look like? What are the steps really about? Why, you know, why go to meetings? How many is enough? And um, I got invited to every family court case uh, conference in the state after that. Yeah, and it was just by getting out of God's way. And they'll touch people's lives that I never see uh, because they have some understanding of recovery now, which is really exciting. You know, our world is so accepting of us. Yeah, um, absolutely loves people in 12-step programs. Uh, for a while, I thought it was becoming stylish. <laughs> yeah. uh, I have learned so much more in 12-step programs than I did in 24 years of school. I've learned things that have made my life worthwhile, that have allowed me to feel comfortable in my own skin, to have a joy for living. Uh, the rewards are uh, incredible. Uh, a friend of mine, Pablo Gomez Jr., uh, has about 30 years of recovery. Uh, Fifteen years ago, he was chairing a meeting in Los Gatos, uh, and uh, Pablo's a real character, saying, it's a great day. It's a great day here in Los Gatos. I don't even have to steal your hubcaps. <laughs> and, uh, and, but he carries a message that we haven't had our best day yet. And I believe that. Yeah, that if I look back on the last 30 years, even with the, the, the cancer and you know, all the other things, the lowest point came at 10 years when I got too busy and too well to go to meetings when my first sponsor went out using again. And I was sitting at home with a 357 Magnum because of where my thinking took me. And fortunately, I just happened to run into somebody in the program. And the lesson for me is I just don't go away anymore. In fact, I increase my meetings at times of stress when things get... Uh, bad. I, I know where to go. When I travel, um, I'm always online before I ever leave. Thank God for the internet. You know, to, uh, we instantly have friends and family wherever we go. I mean, who else has that? And here we have the most lethal, devastating disease on the planet. Uh, Harvard, when they looked at nicotine as an addiction in addition to all the other addiction, they found that 85% of their services in their inpatient and outpatient for five hospitals were utilized by us. You know, unbelievably lethal disease, and yet we get to turn it around into something uh, uh, incredibly joyful, and we touch other people's lives in the process. Um, I would have never believed if you told me I was going to end up in addiction medicine, I would have been really unhappy in my uh, training days. It would have been the uh, uh, I would have thought of fate worse than death. And yes, it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me. I'm not supposed to be on the planet. I only had a 50% chance to live five years with that cancer uh, 12 years ago. So I get on my knees every morning, and I say a prayer of gratitude, and I say a prayer to be useful. And then I show up. I don't have to plan things. I mean, God just keeps uh, putting people into my life and me into theirs. I, I ran into a guy recently that uh, I'd met him 15 years ago at a um, Sunday night meeting I never went to. Um, and... I, normally, I'll, I'll welcome a newcomer, but I'm not a doctor in meetings. I'm there, I'm there in rec uh, recovery. But this guy looked really toxic, and so I went up to him. I just felt drawn. I had to talk to him. I went up to him after the meeting and said, you know, you okay? And he said, yeah, I stopped drinking and using things three days ago. I'm getting less shaky. But, you know, I'm, I'm, my work knows I'm in trouble, and they're sending me tomorrow morning to see an addiction medicine specialist. Uh, and I said, what's his name? Uh, and he said, Dr. Calloway. And I said, I, said, I think he's going to really like you. Yeah. 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 And he said, how can you say that? So I told him. Uh, 
and he started to believe in the spirituality of this, of this program right away. <laughs> and he just crossed 15 years in recovery. Yeah, yeah. I, I love God's sense of humor. Uh, I'll hang around and you know have information for you if you're interested in places to look for information on. Because some people get really interested in the in the uh, chemistry of the brain. I I get more interested in the solutions. Uh, we get to change our thinking. That's what the twelve steps really does. I never it never occurred to me to let go of anything. The first three steps were the first time I developed any peace in my life. Uh, to those things, I would now add different things. I would add exercise. I would add uh, omega-3s. They're pro uh, probably uh, incredibly useful, especially for those of us who have concerns about our brain function even years later. I attended a class last uh, June that my wonderful wife, uh, she's a psych nurse practitioner with 29 years in recovery. Uh, she was really enthused about this class. She signed up for three days. I signed up for one. Yeah, I was, I, I'm ashamed to admit, I was sitting there Monday morning really open. <laughs> I thought they were going to be trying to sell us, you know, supplements without any, any kind of scientific background on it. Instead, it was all hard science, double-blind controlled studies, uh, placebo-controlled, university-based, the kind of stuff that we can really look at. And they were uh, talking about uh, things like uh, anti-inflammatory food groups versus pro-inflammatory they were studying things that no one would ever pay to study. Omega-3s are dirt cheap. I buy mine at Costco. It's $18 for a two-month supply. Uh, but they were showing separations from placebo. You know, humans are interesting. This doesn't happen with animals. But in any study, a third of human beings will get better with a placebo. Uh, that doesn't happen with the animals. Uh, they were getting separation like this, you know, wide separation from placebo with uh, utilizing... Um, omega-3s. And that was the result of that study. Uh, omega-3s uh, can lift people out of depression. They can improve cognitive function. So there, there's a lot that we can do. Uh, and our brains continue to grow, at least until age 55. Uh, I was not at all pleased to hear that we stopped forming oligodendrocytes after age 55. But uh, until then, you can do a lot for, for it. There's also ways, um, if you're having any problems with memory, there's software out there. It's, it's uh, really amazing. You can get dramatic effects on memory in as little as a week by doing these software programs. Uh, and they're very inexpensive and very useful. So there's a lot that we can do uh, to improve uh, the way this thing works. So with that, I'm going to shut up and thank you very much for coming and let me talk.